0: You might remember from chapter 1 that the letter begins the first 6 chapters with the apostle Paul responding to reports that he'd got from Chloe's household about goings on in the church in Corinth. And maybe you'll remember that over the last few weeks Paul has challenged the church over squabbling, divisions, lack of spiritual maturity, their pride, And if you can imagine this long letter being read out to the church as it would have been from start to finish, those Corinthians, by the time they got to chapter four, they must have been hoping that things were going to get better. Or maybe some of them were just beginning to realise that the worst was yet to come. And come it did. In the first two verses of this passage, Paul opens with both barrels it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that not even pagans tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? So what Paul has heard via Chloe's household, is that one of the regular members of the church has been openly carrying on a sexual relationship with his father's wife. In other words, probably not his mother, otherwise Paul would have said so, but most likely his stepmother. Now I think all of us would agree that is not a good thing. But what in particular makes Paul consider this man's behaviour reprehensible? Well, First of all, Paul would have known that this kind of behavior was forbidden in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. In fact, many biblical commentators say that when we find those words sexual immorality in the New Testament, it's kind of code for at least all of the prohibitions listed in Leviticus chapter 18 in the Old Testament. And so... I tell you what, why don't we just turn there very briefly and have a look. So keep your thumb in 1 Corinthians and turn back to page 120 in the Bible. If you turn back to page 120, it's Leviticus 18. And this is a chapter that probably is being referred to most often in the New Testament when the New Testament says sexual immorality. And if we read from verse 5 of Leviticus chapter 18, it says this. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And then it has a list of prohibitions. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. And then it lists them. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. There you go. That's exactly what Paul's upset about. Do not have sexual relations with your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter. And it goes on down this list of prohibitions against sexual relations with people who are close to us. And and it goes on down, even talking about neighbours. Do not take, verse 18, don't take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her. Uh, Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbour's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Now that was a horrible uh, um, religious ritual whereby people who worshipped the god Molech literally sacrificed their, their firstborn child in the fire. Um, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, that is detestable, do not have sexual relations with an animal, and so on. And it goes down and it says, verse 24, "...do not defile yourself in any of these ways." And then if you look on down to verse 29, you'll see what the sanction is for doing any of these things. And it says in verse 29, Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. In other words, thrown out of the community. So firstly, firstly, we see that this behaviour going on in the church in Corinth clearly contravenes these divine guidelines on sexual relations. So if we turn now back to the letter, we'll see, because the the second half of verse 1 shows us that Paul was almost more upset by something else. And um, he says that what's going on is a kind of sexual immorality that not even the pagans tolerate. So secondly, here they are living in the city of Corinth, a town renowned for its appalling morality, a place teeming with thousands of prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, shrine prostitutes, um, and dark rituals going on and worse besides. And yet Paul says that what this man in the church is doing is even worse than what's going on outside in that pagan society. Apparently the famous Greek orator, and politician Cicero called these types of relationships unbelievable. That's how bad they were. And thirdly, the third thing is this, is that some of the Christians in Corinth are actually boasting about what this man is doing. Uh, And you are proud, says Paul in verse 2, obviously appalled. You should have gone into mourning over this, not boasted about it. And so, in verses 3 to 5, Paul gathers a courtroom. And he does it, obviously, remotely because he's writing from a different city, uh, probably Ephesus. And he says that he, Paul, is going to be present in spirit and that Jesus is going to be present in power, in verse 4, and that he's already judged the man. And the church must gather formally and hand this man over to Satan... For the destruction of his flesh. Ooh, that sounds really nasty, doesn't it? But what does Paul mean by that? Well, most biblical commentators say that the punishment is simply this, that the man, as per Leviticus 18, is going to be expelled from the church community. And this rather dramatic expression of handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh is understood to mean that while the church The people of God belonged to Jesus Christ. The community outside, the outside world, was considered to be the dominion of Satan, sometimes referred to the prince of this world and and, and so on. And so that by expelling him from the church, they were effectively removing him from the protection afforded by being part of the church family and leaving him to the outside world, the world that was under the dominion of Satan. And that word translated flesh in the New Testament, by the way, is often used to to mean sort of fleshly desires or sensual desires. And so the hope is that by casting this man out, he'd quickly discover that the culture of Corinth, even the culture of Corinth, would reject his behaviour and would once expelled, soon come to his senses, repent of his behaviour and turn back to God. And that is Paul's heart for this man. The second half of verse 5 he writes this, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul wants the very best for this man, not the worst. And this is so important to understand. God loves us. There is nothing in our past that is beyond the pale as far as God is concerned. Many of us will no doubt have got into all kinds of scrapes and inappropriate relationships in the past, especially perhaps in later teenage years and young adult years, maybe later on too. But the good news is, God loves us. Everything can be forgiven. Nothing, nothing at all cannot be forgiven. And I've known people who've really struggled with feelings of worthlessness, Of of self disgust or, or fear about what's happened in the past. But as Romans 8 tells us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The moment we come to Christ and admit our need of his forgiveness, he comes into our hearts. He cleanses us from all sin and makes us sons and daughters of God and pours his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. No need for guilt. No need for shame. So, that's the courtroom drama. And next comes a kind of cooking lesson. As Paul now explains why this immoral behavior is not just bad for the person concerned, but why it's terrible for the whole church. Verse 6 Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Whew, that's some cooking lesson, isn't it? What on earth is Paul on about? Well, to understand this, you have to realise that although we would consider yeast to be a good thing, as it makes bread and cakes rise when you bake them. In Paul's Jewish background, the phrase, a little yeast leavens the whole dough, was used as a metaphor for bad stuff spoiling what is good. So in this case, the bad behaviour of the man, which rather than being dealt with, has been flaunted by the Corinthian church, is like the yeast which works through the dough. It taints the whole church. And Paul links this idea with the Jewish Passover festival. You see, when the Israelites were told to get ready, when they were in Egypt, slaves in Egypt, and they were told to get ready to flee, they were told not to use yeast, but to bake unleavened bread. Because it's much quicker. You don't have to wait for the dough to rise. You can bake bread much quicker without yeast. And they had to flee in the middle of the night very quickly As the angel of death passed over their houses on whose door frames had been daubed the blood of the lambs which saved them. And in the same way, says Paul, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed at Passover on the cross in order to save us. And so Paul compares the old batch of dough contaminated by sin with the pure unleavened bread as he calls it, of sincerity and truth, which should be our nature when we're in Christ Jesus. So if you're a little bit confused by that analogy, don't worry. All he's saying is that allowing that kind of behaviour to go on in the church unchallenged would ultimately compromise the whole church and undermine their Christian witness and bring Jesus Christ into disrepute. Rather, than being the countercultural movement of goodness and purity, which Paul had called them to be when he founded the church there. So finally, in verses 9 to 13, we discover, firstly, a fascinating little insight into Paul's relationship with the, with the Corinthian church, as well as a really important principle about how we relate to the unbelieving world. Firstly, the fascinating insight is that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth at least three times. Paul mentions in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, clearly referring to a previous letter that we know that the Corinthian church responded to in writing because if you were to flip over one page and look at chapter 7, verse 1, you would see Paul say, now for the matters you wrote about. They had clearly responded. And of course, we have a third letter, which we call 2 Corinthians, which is written some time later, and interestingly enough, it refers back to this very incident um, of of, of the the man accused of sexual morality. And in that, Paul says it's now time to forgive and comfort him. And although there isn't much detail, it seems that this banishment from the church that he recommended did go ahead, and that at some point in the future, he came back. And they forgave him and welcomed him back into the church. It's in 2 Corinthians 2, if you want to take a look at another time. But the main thing is, in verses 9 to 13, is that Paul clears up a misunderstanding. He's told them in that previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But they misunderstood him and they thought he meant people outside the church. And Paul here says very firmly, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people inside the church. I don't want you isolating yourselves from the world outside. But what I don't want you doing is affirming immoral behaviour in the church. And I wonder, I wonder how quick we are sometimes to judge the lifestyle of people outside the church. Paul says that's no business of ours. They're not believers. God will judge them we shouldn't and it reminds me that before I came to faith I held totally different views to what I do now. Today I hold to the what I believe is biblical teaching and the official teaching of the Anglican Church on sexual relationships which although it's much disputed and challenged by many even from within nonetheless remains as follows. Namely that scripture teaches that The God intended place for sexual relations is between a man and a woman within the context of a faithful and lifelong commitment of marriage, and that abstinence is the right choice for those not called to marriage. Now, of course, if someone had tried to tell me that when I was 18 years old and I wasn't a believer, I would have told them to mind their own business. But today, I see this biblical view of marriage to be the most. Beautiful, the most precious, the most intimate kind of relationship that you can have. It's about total commitment, all in. Everything I have is yours. I give myself to you for the rest of my life. With my body, I honor you, as the marriage vows say. It's so countercultural. It's so countercultural. Christian marriage is radical. And it's interesting, too, that Jesus uses the analogy of marriage to describe his relationship to the church, both in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. That he describes himself as the groom and the church as his bride. That's how preciously he views the marriage relationship. Now, of course, human relationships break down. Even Christian marriages break down. We live in a fallen world and we are imperfect people. You can't be a Christian unless you admit that you're imperfect, unless you admit your sinfulness. But like Paul, we're called to follow Christ in the best way we know how. Why? Because Jesus died for us. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, says Paul. There's no greater love than that. It's the very best reason for putting our trust in Jesus and living lives that honour him, lives which will point others to him, others whose lives in turn can be transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.